0: You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello, and welcome to Unfiltered, which this week features Simon Thomas, the former Blue Peter presenter and Sky Sports anchor, who latterly has come to, well, a prominence he would rather not have achieved by dint of speaking so frankly and so honestly about the loss of his wife Gemma just over 6 months ago and his struggles with both depression and anxiety and of course with the reality of raising a little boy alone. Well you're here for a myriad reasons Simon a Blue Peter presenter Sky Sports presenter and latterly something of a pioneer in in what I would describe as emotional literacy although it's a it's a particular tragedy that has brought you into that position. We'll we'll work our way towards that and start at the very beginning, which was in Norfolk. <laughs> oh, we're going
1: we're going back, Here aren't we? Go, we're we? going hey. right
0: back. Oh well, think of how many glorious oh, no. sporting journalism careers began in the. I know. <laughs> <laughs> about those streets of Norwich. Yeah. Your dad was a vicar. Yeah. So
1: presumably, religion was quite big in your life from quite an early age. Yeah, faith it really was. But you know, I've reflected on it numerous times across the years. It was never, ever forced on me. I never felt I had unavoidable, though. Yeah, but I never felt that Dad was saying, you know, you've got to believe this or anything like that. Uh, What I did know is that going to church as I got older, for him... To have his family there meant something. Okay. So actually, if I didn't go, it was kind of not makes life difficult for the old man. But I, You're in aware terms of, of Yeah, in terms of family pride and that. It was something that was there. And as you got older, you then developed the skills to sort of question it and yes. work it through for yourself. But it, it was always there. It's part of family life. It did, what was not, family life? Who, who, who else was in the family? So I got my sister, Becky, who was a year younger than me. Uh, and then Hannah came six years after I was born. And we were sort of in Norfolk till we were 10. It was, I, I absolutely loved it there. I just We were just in between two fields, a rural village just outside Kingsley and West Norfolk. The days of just cruising around the village on your bike with your mates. You know, no questions asked about how long you're going to go for. I knew mean, you would to be back for tea and stuff. We sure. had streams near the house. We had rafts that we'd build and it just, it, it, listen, no child is perfect, but it wasn't far off. Certainly really? that area up to the age of 10 in Norfolk, yeah. absolutely loved it. And that's See, why so it's always... Away. Yeah. It was, it was, yeah. It pretty, I know that part of Norfolk yeah. quite well. It is absolutely idyllic. I love it.
0: But then at the age of 10, you moved to Surrey. Yeah. Yeah, carried on being fairly idyllic or things changed? Yeah, it was,
1: it was a very different pace of life. I mean, I, got, I, I went the interesting route because with, with Gemma over the past couple of years, we had discussed whether we put Ethan into public school or not. Right. Now, I got launched into public school. So the route I went is from state school in Norfolk to public school in Banstead, Heath. It okay. was uh, Abadale Prep School. And it happened. So we left Norfolk. It was 83. And we left there just ahead of the summer term. And so I went state school to public. And that was, culturally, that was a massive, massive gap. But you, I mean, sport must be a great leveller, mustn't it? For a,
0: a young lad struggling in a new environment. The fact that you. Well, I hadn't heard of rugby. Do you know? Oh, when I'd heard of it, I didn't, didn't understand. Play it. rugby at my pub, no. I didn't play
1: football at my public school. They well, thought I, it was too common. I mean, I, I I suddenly found myself in the first team within only a few weeks, only because I just thought it was absolutely hilarious and amazing that you were allowed to run after someone and grab him round the legs and bring him down. Yes. That you were able to do, obviously not with a clenched fist, but you were able to hand someone off. You know, I'd never heard of this in sport, and no. so you know, I've been over played football and a bit of cricket and done some cross country running. So I just became this ferocious tackler because I enjoyed it. The problem was, as as I got a bit older and became wiser to the rules, it became more complicated. <laughs> But I, was, I was just basically a lunatic,
0: but that must have helped with the settling in. That's what I mean. Okay? Yeah, no, I did. It, that, that yeah, kind yeah, yeah. If I
1: was in an all boys school, yeah, as well, and if, so if you felt that sense of belonging, because yeah. I felt like a fish out of water when I got there. But and as soon
0: as you can produce the goods on the rugby pitch, you you become you have that a character, You become yeah. a role. You have your space.
1: The lunatic now, what from we, Norfolk, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Norfolk hooligan.
1: Yeah. What he like, like academically? I was not a natural. That was the other thing I found quite hard, making that transition from States. It wasn't so much that the quality of education where I was at was somehow inferior to that. It was just that they were doing stuff that we'd only just started. So they were already two years down the line with French. I was only a year into it. Did your mum and dad know that you were struggling like that? They did about two weeks after I joined the school because they, bless them, and they've admitted since in the years gone by that it was a mistake. But what they felt was, and I can understand this, is that the school I went to, Averdale in Banstead, was amongst the fields. And so they felt that perhaps the the cultural shift would be made easier by being in the countryside, which I'd only ever known. Yes, of course. The problem was I was not the kind of kid who was ever going to thrive being away from mum and dad. So to move from from Norfolk down to Surrey yeah. to then be thrown into a new school and then to be thrown into the situation where you're, you're not coming home at night right. was horrendous. So it was only two weeks in that I then transferred from being a boarder, a weekly boarder, to being Gee, a day boy. Because really? what I've worked out – I mean, A, I was immensely homesick. yeah, And I've worked out quite early on. There was a guy in my class called Adam – who was travelling in from Cheam. So I'm like, why is he, hang on a minute, why is he going home every night? So one night I gave him a letter, and it was quite an emotional letter, saying, Mum and Dad, I can't do this. Really? I, I tried to run away twice. Gosh, in that
0: first fortnight? Yeah,
1: I hated it, absolutely hated
0: it. And have you always been very, very comfortable talking about your feelings and your emotions? No. So no, that, no, That's
1: a relatively recent development. That's probably since I've been married, well, not probably, since I've been married to Gemma. Right. Yeah. Who- found something in you that you hadn't really found yourself well we were forced into it really early on i mean if you'd asked my mates it would have been our wedding 13th wedding anniversary this this coming august if you'd asked what the simon was like back then they'd have said a, a closed book really emotionally yeah do you think yeah. that's partly because of the educational system probably a little bit yeah you know crying in the dormitory those yeah, first yeah, couple yeah. of weeks yeah. people look i remember some of the guys faces i mean they were we i was 10 at the time so yeah. whether you know they the same they're the same age Botted they were quite up, confused up, like, what's this guy doing yes why is he, and that's why I would go, actually often take myself off and walks around the school grounds and let it out there because I was aware the reaction I was getting for people was that this guy's a bit odd. Why is he crying? Because they often hear, you hear stories of boarding schools where boys will cry themselves to sleep at night yeah, that's right. when the lights are down, yeah. they can't be seen. Don't know who it They're is not letting the sure. side down. And they, yeah, someone's sobbing, but we don't know who. And I think that carried on right through my teenage years, but right from the start of being married to Gemma. I mean, six months before we tied the knot, we decided, because of our faith, we weren't going to have sex before marriage. And so this hadn't needed to be raised before this point. But did six you meet through right. church? No, she ended up doing the same job that I did. I worked through the Oasis Trust, as yes. a charity. And I'd kind of given up on the presenting dream. I'd, I'd kind of given it three and a half years. And we met at my old boss's, okay. her boss's party back in the summer. I'd actually gone there to find oh. someone. Well, I had my eyes on someone else. <laughs> uh, outrageous. <laughs> I know. But I'm, glad, I'm so glad I met her. We, we will move to, to that period. Um,
0: but I want to know a little bit more about young Simon first. Yeah. And did you cheer up immediately when she became a day boy? Did it? Yeah. You did? was yeah. then... still
1: hard because I was launched into almost the rat race of education. Yes. Because we were surrounded by the rat race of commuters in Cheam. It's an incredibly...
0: I mean, they talk now a yeah. lot about hot housing children, mm. but that... That commuter belt mm. probably
1: invented hot housing mm. children in this country, yeah. didn't it? It's- yeah, yeah that, that was a massive culture shock. And actually, there was a pressure academically that I hadn't experienced before.
0: And other people's mums have an opinion about yeah. it. That's the yeah. really surprising thing about yeah. that world, isn't it? That yeah. kind of... What book is he on? What's yeah. he reading? What, what, what grades
1: is he getting? You know what? Dead Pearl Society. Yeah, of course. You know yes. the dad, you know Neil's dad. Oh, man. Yeah, I well, I, <laughs> listen, I'm not suggesting this guy's dad was the same. Of course. But I, I remember the first time I watched Dead Perth Society, I, I remember this guy uh, yeah, yeah. from my class, and I remember his dad. I remember he had a Jaguar XJS, and he used to come down the, the school drive and then round the roundabout to the same parking spot every Wednesday. This dad, this boy in my class, had an audience with the headmaster because every week he wanted to know exactly how his son was doing, where he was falling behind. We had mark cards, so every Friday you'd queue up to go past the headmaster's desk that sat grandly for some bizarre reason on top of a stage to make it even more not, of a sort of yeah. fearful moment yeah. in the week. <laughs> and he would look at the mark card and give you a, a comment or whatever. He just there was that pressure all the time. And I wasn't a natural academic, right. but it just, I just had to get with it, you know, catch up in terms of Latin. Well, but I you say did? Catch up, you uh, did. yeah. Eventually, yeah. I was much happier at public school right. than prep school. Okay. I think I spent most of my time at prep school just getting my head around a new culture. Public yeah. school, I went to and thought, actually, I quite enjoy this. You knew what to expect. Yeah. And presumably, again, sport gave you a golden ticket or something. Yeah, and it just, I, you know, I love the fact that it was. It was not an opt out. Whatever level you played at, it wasn't an opt out. You'd have you, listen, there were guys who did want to opt out, but they'd sure. have to bring in the old sick note. Yeah. You know, the old ingrowing toenail was always a classic on yeah. it, yeah. eh?
0: <laughs> yeah. That was good slattice disease. It's very hard to prove <laughs> on yeah. the odd knees. It, it, at what point during it did you begin to think about what you might do afterwards? Because if you're resisting that mm. really competitive side of things, mm. but equally, you're more aware than perhaps you would have been if you'd stayed in, in, in Grimston. Of, of the wider world. Yeah. Is that a fair comment or not? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah, probably. So when did you start thinking, what do I want to be when I grow up? Wasn't really until uni. Right. That's so you when... followed.
1: It's a conveyor belt, isn't it? For, yeah. Is yeah, it was only group? really it's got there. A yeah. university. And we had a little bit of a mad period, me and my housemate Andy, where right. we were just kind of we went to a careers fair. I think it was in our final year. I'm, and all the time I've been doing this TV programme at university for the student TV channel. Okay. So I was already really enjoying that kind of side of but things. But you
0: wouldn't have described that as an
1: ambition. That was just a whole Well, thing well it was of growing, but I think in my mind I was thinking, well, how on earth would I ever go on to be a, a Blue Peter presenter? How would I ever get on the telly? So maybe while I'm thinking about that, I need to go and do something sensible. So, okay. But me and him just went around the careers fair. We ended up in... Um, Doing the, uh, the graduate selection scheme for the Metropolitan Police. Do you really? Yeah. Well, with in sincerity. We, we both mean, just thought, you just yeah. There for a long. No, we, no, we both thought quite like, I mean, I, there was something attractive about being a police, but I thought Absolutely. it was something adventurous about it. Yes. And we end up down on a selection day. I mean, I'd, you know, I'd filled in a proper application form. You had to supply your medical records. I was out of Hendon in half an hour because the first thing that happens is the medical. Right. And you have the humiliation of standing there naked in front of the, Seriously. <laughs> the police doctor. Yeah, they have to do it. That's and they have to have a, a witness there who's another police officer. Right. So I stood there naked. I'd had my knees played around with. They were aware of all of this already, but it felt like they were just putting you through it. I know they weren't, but... sure. And then, about ten minutes after getting out of the medical, so I did not even got to the blinking bleep test or anything yet, <laughs> We <laughs> called out five names. Yeah, and one of, one of them was mine. Right, and we got taken to this room. And I remember the police officer saying, "Said, well, you'll all know why you're here." And I'm generally looking at him. I really don't. Thing again, put on the cover. but I'd had two yeah yeah you're in I come this way I'd had two knee ops when I was 16 right so on this side of my knee on the right hand side there's no cartilage right I've run five marathons on it I've never had a problem with it as I'm getting older I can sense sure the problems they talked about all those years ago beginning but I was straight away rejected because of the pension question as in is your knee going to go bad within the first six months and then we've got you on our of course our books basically uh, but I, I, it was a lucky escape that was that was not going to be me I, I for some bizarre reason I ended up on a John Lewis management selection day but this
0: is quite why t- would I want to do that yeah but this is quite typical for graduates of that era yeah. I right? think
1: we're very similar ages and, and
0: you, you had the financial stuff that they called mm. the milk round which yeah, yeah. presumably you didn't that didn't float no, no, no. too many numbers yeah. too much and then it really was well what else can I do yeah, yeah. and if you haven't got a specific
1: ambition exactly. at that
0: point you, you could easily end up doing yeah. Met on Monday and being at John Lewis on Tuesday exactly so you didn't end up as a shop assistant either. No, I remember, a management I remember
1: trainee. No, I remember doing a group exercise and you could see everyone jostling for position in terms of making sure I'm saying the right things. When you know, when they come round they they're watching a group exercise, I just thought, I mean, this is the wrong place for me to be. I, I really couldn't give a monkeys about whether I end up being a John Lewis manager or not. I don't want to be here. And I'm definitely not in the same ballpark as these guys. They right. want this job. Yes. I don't. I've just randomly ended up yes. on Oxford Street discussing where the best place to put labels on for a cushion is. This, this is not me. No. So, uh, yeah, I, I didn't even make day two. I didn't even go back. I just thought, this is, this is not me.
0: Did you ever fear failure at that stage? In life? Did you ever worry about not having a plan or not having a,
1: a part? Not at this of... stage. I mean, But I remember vividly coming out of university and I went back to yeah. Suffolk where my parents were by this You were place. At University in Birmingham? Right? Yeah. yeah. And my dad's last parish before he retired was Beckles was in Suffolk. Yeah, beautiful Lovely. place. Almost Such a stun- to, yeah. yeah. Stunning place. And I went back for that summer. Um, and by this point, I knew that, Blue Peter was the one I was going to aim for.
0: Why, mate? Because I, I knew, obviously, yeah. you did end up on hmm. Spoiler alert. But, uh, <laughs> but, Spoiler. But I didn't know that yeah. it was a, a pretty close to, a, if not quite a childhood ambition, yeah. but it was part of a plan. It was yeah. certainly part of an aim. How yeah. come? What was it about Blue Peter that... that- well, I, st-
1: I, I was doing that TV station at university. What kind of stuff were you doing there? Uh, I did a terrible programme called The Lunchbox. Went yes. out on a Friday at lunchtime. Me and another girl, I can't even remember her names. If you're listening, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, went out on all the guilds. Well, they were just portable TVs. We didn't have big wide screens back in those days. Uh, It was on mute. No one watched it. If you said I'd present the lunchbox, they'd like, what? Who? What? Who? What? But, but you were there. But it was a proper TV studio. Yeah, that was yeah, the thing because yeah. they, the guy who ran it got all the secondhand equipment from Pebble Mill that was just down the road where right, the BBC yeah. daytime yeah. output used to come from before they bulldozed it for some bizarre reason mm. and went back to London, and then went back to Manchester. But well, let's not get into that. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got a taste for it. And it, I'd watched Blue Pizza as a kid. I loved it. I loved the adventure. It, very, it kind of ticked so many boxes for me. Yes. Yeah, I just. I loved it as a kid and I thought as a university when this, this person said to me as we were approaching the last sort of month or so of, of that summer term before it all, you know, we graduated. Yeah. said, you know, you're really good at this. You, sh- you should chase it down. What do you want? And I said, well, I'd love to do believe it. She said, well, just go for it. Yeah. And I came back that summer and sat in my parents' house in Beckles and just said, right, I'm going to give myself three years. I don't know why I said three years. I felt you can, I didn't want to chase the dream forever. You've no. got to be kind of realistic. Yes. And I just thought, right, well, give myself three years. In the end, it's closer to four. But you had to earn a crust in the interim. Yeah. What did you do? Selfridges. Really? Yeah. In to, to Oxford Street. Did so so you, you moved to Two London? and a half years. So you yeah,
0: moved. We came down. I can't believe our paths haven't crossed before. I, you I didn't was, work there, did you? I worked on the Aquascoot and Concession in Selfridges. No. Yeah, I worked mostly on Regent Street, but I was on the Aquascoot and Concession quite often. I was often. Hugo Boss. Say, oh, you were on the cool floor. I <laughs> was on the old... Fo- Look, nothing's changed. I <laughs> no. <is> <laughs>
1: was
0: on the old fogey floor.
1: You probably, you probably, you must have known some of the guys i knew then. Happy some of the days, old boys. Happy days. Yeah, though. the Are You Being Served Boys. That, that's right,
0: yeah. Happy days.
1: Camp as they come. He's he's brilliant. We had
0: basically John Inman on our floor. Did you? He was Mr Humphreys. There wasn't even any uh, in between. So so you moved to London. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice lifestyle, this, Mm. I felt. um, Mm. Because I was almost exactly the same, trying to get into the media. My student job, I was in London, went on to be my Mm. stopgap job. So I'm Yeah yeah yeah. There. And and the banter you go out after work Loved you, it. you'd have and you had you could yeah. afford to live in central London yeah. pretty much.
1: Yeah yeah. Well, we we were renting a basement flat in Els Court. There you go. Just around the corner from where Freddie Mercury used to live. And yes. I was a, I was a Big Queen fan. So He's yeah. sometimes potted down at Logan Place I think it was That's where true. he lived. Yeah. It was I, mean, I did, listen to be honest I didn't enjoy the actual job of standing on a shop floor all day because of the hours the hours it's tiring and, and it sometimes it is, people were boring yeah, and we were quite near the loo's and yeah. even though the sign was there my most common question was where the loo's Yeah all right. Yeah just down there, turn right. And they, they start walking off before you even tell them. So I used to, to stop talking. They said, oh, you didn't finish. Well, you walked off. And there's some of the games to amuse yourself. But you're right. I, I actually really enjoyed that era. Mm. You know, because I knew like, this is not what I'm going to do forever. And I haven't been fortunate enough. But I'm glad I wasn't for my parents to bankroll me for two or three years, like they do with some people. So yeah. you go and chase your dream for a few years, we'll bankroll you. And then you can go and do something proper. And actually, interestingly enough, I, I started doing runner's jobs. So I'd auditioned for CBBC once or twice. I ended up doing a runner's job on Sundays. Did you have an agent then? Or we no, just, no, no. You were just sending I'm just, off... I'm firing the, the old VHS tapes. So, out so, so you're comfortable with rejection then? Yeah, I got used to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, well, you um, say that quite casually. It's, it's, no, at the time it hurt, because you, sure, certainly you, with the broom cupboards, yes. I got quite close to being taken on as one Did of those links you? presenters yes. between the programmes. Now, at a time when I'm getting nowhere with Blue Peter, that would have been a damn good second best. It yes, you know, would have been great. Yeah, And I felt i have been led up the garden path a little bit because right. everything felt after the audition like I was going to be the next one. The presenters were, you know, taking me out for dinner yeah. and saying that they really like you. And then suddenly something changed. Right. And they just sort of said, there's a runner's job going on Sundays. And I, and I started doing that, but I really, really enjoyed it. Okay. And actually on weeknights, because I went to do a radio day at LBC when it yeah. was up down near Hammersmith. Okay. A guy yes. called Jeremy Dry. Before my time, yeah. but I'm aware of his work. Yeah. 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 And he ran a media day. And I'm <laughs> your face. <laughs> and... I I I was always one of those people. I just if you don't ask, you don't get. So give yes, it a go. that's what impression I'm getting. And after the the, the, the media day I ran, he ran. I just said, is there any chance that I could do some some work experience or mm-hmm. bit of runners' jobs? And so I used to go there on a Wednesday evening, and he after the Selfridges. yeah, yeah. And he was on later in the evening, so yeah. we watched the you know, the drive time boys were on, and I think Peter Dealey was still doing it. There, yeah, legend. I yeah, I loved his voice. Absolutely incredible. And. And then it was his show, and I'd, you know, I'd do all the menial stuff runners do. But occasionally, if the debate was really, really poor, yeah. they'd stick me in a booth next door. Pretend to ring put in. Put a funny voice on, ring in, stir things up. not give away the secret. <laughs> Sorry, mate. Don't do that anymore. Oh, they never do it anymore.
0: Do that. My first ever, <laughs> shit. Sunday night, I took over from uh, Mike Allen, who hadn't had a phone-in. So for the last five years on LBC, obviously, there'd been no phone-in yeah. element to the Sunday night slot. It was my first gig. yeah. So no one rang because they weren't used to to ringing. I got I got to start went on at 10 p.m. Got to 10:48 and finally a phone line comes on and I recognise the bloody number. It's my wife. (laughs) how are you darling thanks for ringing in she didn't admit yeah but it was brilliant oh yeah i've forgotten that until you remind me did it get the debate going um i well i got three more calls before (laughs) one o'clock in the morning i think so who knows who knows what would happen if she hadn't shoot how time to to change but you didn't fall in love with that then because because i did i first time i crossed the threshold of radio phone is i never really wanted to do anything else yeah you
1: you were still almost accumulating experience sort of portfolio yeah. yeah and hoping that maybe one day somewhere Perhaps in an unexpected place, a door might open. I always say to people, the hardest thing is to get your foot in the door. Yes. In whatever shape that might be, even if it is a runner's job, because once you're in there, you've got a chance to have conversations with people. Yes. You're in and amongst it. You've got a chance to try perhaps impress people by taking on a a job or a role that you weren't expecting. That's the hardest thing is to get across that threshold. And once you do it, it's down to you. Yes. Do you take that opportunity or not?
0: So, two and a half years in, a little bit of dabbling in TV, dabbling in radio, but two and a half years into Selfridges, you must have begun to think that this wasn't yeah. going to happen. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did.
1: I applied for Blue Peter twice when people left.
0: How close did you get? Do you know? Oh, it? nowhere. You didn't get I, seen? I,
1: no, no, I got the old letter, the usual Just one. Just the letter. Keep your details on file. Yeah. Thank That's you. That's rubbish. Yeah. We all know what that means. <laughs> Recycler. So, um, how
0: do you, you pick yourself up, dust yourself down?
1: I think rejection at that point is is hard. The worry I had when Richard Bacon had left in such a blaze of glory, yes. however you want to look at it, is that when that first letter came through, so I, I left it a couple of weeks, of thought, at least let the bed get cold. Right. And I know they'll be hurting. And I knew When I met them, they were still producers they're hurting and losing him because they loved Richard, yes. you know, and didn't want to lose him, but understood why he had to go. But after that two-week period, I've sent my showreel tape in. and thought one one last go, and a couple of weeks later, I got a letter back, and there was just a subtle change. And this time is we're currently shortlisting okay. those we want to interview. Because you read so much into yes, the subtle changes? But I just grasp you, it. It's a like grab a kiss all. when you're 14, yeah. if a girl puts a kiss on a letter, and exactly. that's marriage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. And 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 now we try and interpret emojis. Uh, We've gone insane. that mad. But
0: you knew that there there, there was something there was just there, something different The door about was ajar. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And it then turned into a really long process. So eventually, I did get the interview. And after the interview, they put you straight into the blue Peter Garden to do a piece to camera, exactly. which you, do, you don't know they're going to do. And then yeah. you had to wait ages. And then it became the audition. There was four of us, and they decided to show that film of the four of us really? auditioning of to, to kind of debunk some of the myths. Yeah, I was, re- and they said it's going to be really hard. Well, well, they asked for your permission. You were never going to say no. No, of course not. But they said for three of you, it's going to be the toughest watch you'll ever have oh. because you were that close. And so, fortunately, I never had to have that watch. But you know, Jay Comfrey was one of them. Was he? I was yeah. about to ask. Yeah, Jay was one of them. Only. um there's a guy called Mike. Michael Underwood, who's yeah. married yeah. to a good friend of mine, Angelica Bell. Yeah, no, 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 you know, he's a lovely yeah, guy, a, talent. a guy called Jonas Hurst. Great. He was on Channel 5 News right. for a while. Uh, and me, old Megan, see it. They all had experience. I yeah. didn't. I remember sitting in the, they called it the soft seating area in, in East Tower, BBC Television Centre. So we had to spend time with the others, which you never had to do normally. you no. come in and do your audition and go home. You wouldn't bump into them. But you are doing interaction. Oh, well, I remember saying, I remember I was chatting about what experience I had. And they were all doing stuff. Right. And I was like, well, I've just done two years at Selfridges and now I'm working for a charity. But you know what that did? Because I just thought, I've not got a chance here. Yeah. So I remember going down into the the dressing room we were given and waited for my slot. And I remember I, mean, I prayed about it. I said, God, give me the words to say. But I also thought, do you know what? I've got nothing to lose here. These guys have got tons of experience. I'm the rank outside yeah. here. In my head, I am anyway. It's relaxing. Freezing. Yeah, Liber- I know, I just went in there and just gave it, just it. Gave it large as someone said. But did you know? What, that I got it that night? Yeah. No. But did you know you'd aced it? I knew I'd done as, I wanted to go away from there, leaving no regrets in Studio One Television Centre. Yeah. I couldn't have done any more. I remember vividly my boss at Oasis taking me out for lunch. He just had this hunch I was going to get it and actually interesting it was that day I did get it but he took me out for lunch and said look I need to talk to you about the various things because I was even doing PR for the for races we did PR for other charities yeah. he said some of the projects you're working on some of the accounts I need to talk to you about where they are at just in case you get the job and I remember saying I can't even go there because it's like being taken into the sweet shop and being told you can't have any sweets sure. I, can't, I don't even engage with it but, it, but we did and, and that afternoon about four o'clock I get a call from John Comerford he says can you come into TV Centre tonight and, and by eight o'clock that night I had the job but who did you did. ring first mum and dad did you yeah well, we weren't spoke well I wasn't supposed to tell anyone apart from close family sure. and this was a month before Christmas and I right. wasn't going to be on until early January of the next year so you got probably five weeks sitting on it and that was really hard of sitting course. on that you know, it's the but mum and dad amazing- were oh I remember I remember ringing my sister from High Street well. Kensington yeah, tube station right you know, she'd lived with me for quite a while in the London years. And so she'd seen me going through the ringer and trying to... And so suddenly you say, I've, I've made it. Yeah. I want to vividly remember walking out of Lorraine Heggersy's office. So she was the head of Jones yeah. BBC at the time, the one who made that sort of Queen Mother announcement about Richard. It was like the Queen's Speech, wasn't it? it was a bit. But you walked out of there and, and there was all the pictures of the previous 26. I was number 27. All those previous presenters. And you just think... This is the most exclusive club mm. in England. Mm. It is because look, I'm a, there's only 27 members. then, there's Noxie. Yeah. I watched them as a kid. Now yeah. I'm in this. It just the most exciting, unbelievable, surreal moment of my life so far. And
0: it was it lived up to all your expectations. I mean, it, it, yeah, and beyond. It was yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's a really rare thing, isn't totally it? Totally. To so, so a to aim yeah, so yeah. high, b to hit it, and mm. then c to have all your expectations met. Yeah, now yeah, how, yeah. Before we talk briefly about that. How, how does God fit into this? Because I love the way you talk so mm. casually. I think it'd be good if more people did, actually, mm. instead of having to make it all so portentous and <laughs> and analysed. When you get something like
1: that, yeah. do, do, you, do you thank God? Yeah, because I, the, the moment of which I just thought, this is what I need to be doing. This is what I'm going to chase down was back in Beckles that summer yes. of 1995. And I vividly remember the afternoon. It was boiling hot. And I, I bought this book on how to be a TV presenter. I bought another book that had all the editors of the various programs and various production companies across the country. The, the, the internet was around yeah, them. Yeah. There was no way as advanced as no, now. The you needed the books. Mm. And I had them. And I was all ready to start writing letters. I knew Dad was going out later that afternoon for a few meetings so the computer would be available. I was about to do it and I thought, you know what? I haven't actually I haven't even asked God about this. You know, my, my faith is about a relationship. It's yes. not religion. It's, it's a about, conversation. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a relationship. Mm. I haven't even asked God about this. Am I about to waste the next three years of my life? I probably ought to pray about it. And and I just remember praying, look, I just said, God give me a sign that I'm not about to waste the next three years. I had no idea what that sign might look like. Just something just confirm it in your head. And people might listening to this or watching this would say, Well, just a wonderful coincidence, isn't sure. it? But only two hours later, I'm then sat at my dad's desk. I've got the old Apple Mac fired up and ready to go. I've got me books, got me list of people I'm going to write to. And I just cast my eyes to the left-hand side as a pile of magazines. And there I can't remember the name of it. I think it was called the Alpha Magazine, but nothing to do with the Alpha course yes. that some people may have heard of. And I just looked at the sort of subheaders down the side of it, of some of the, item, the articles inside. And one of them was... And this, I remember it vividly, just said, Why we need more Christians in the media. Oh, there you go. Straight to page 68, whatever it was. And it was like one of those moments. Sometimes you hear a talk in life. Yes. And it feels like you're the only person in the room, and that talk was only aimed at you. It's like this article had been written. Only to me. Wow. And it was a guy called Steve Chalk, who runs the Oasis Trust, who I ended up working for yeah. in those Oasis days. Yeah. Pam Rhodes, who was doing Songs of Praise That's at the right, time. Yeah. And it's the whole thing about no, I remember Steve saying, it's no use Christians complaining about what's on TV or what's on radio, or what's in the newspapers and throwing stones from a distance. If you want to change stuff, if you want to change how the media is, You need to get involved because when you look at the life of Jesus, as I look, the Jesus figure I I read about in the Gospels, he didn't park his his tent outside Jerusalem and say, right, you come to me. Mm. I'll wait for you here. He went and got his hands dirty. He got in amongst it. And I remember Steve saying, you know, if you want to change things, if you want to have a positive influence on the media, whatever that might look like, get involved. You were a presenter in the old-fashioned mould of pizza, Mm. weren't you? You you had
0: a touch of the John Noakeses about you. You like like getting into scrapes and daredevil stuff. Yeah, anything
1: where there was the tangible smell of death, (laughs) I'd be up for it, yeah.
0: Um, And then the natural progression from there to Sky Sports.
1: Well, I felt it was looking fairly natural at the time because I'd made positive noises about sport quite early on. I'll tell you why, because... I never, ever accepted or believed the line that people often said to me in the early days, well, you're made for life now. Yeah. You know, this sure. will lead to so many other things. It wasn't a case of self-doubt. It was just a case of, well, this hasn't come easily to me. You know, take my mate, Matt Baker. Mm. You know, well, he's been amazing to me in the last few weeks, the way he's supporting me. You know, for Matt, it happened really, really quickly. Yes. He saw that Stuart Miles was leaving and he literally, fair play to him, he picked the phone up, rang the editor, got through to Claire, gold sack. Steve Hawking's yeah. uh, PA and said, so "What do we need to do?" So we need to make a show real tape. That night, with his dad and his farming county Durham, Respect. he makes a show real tape. Brilliant yeah. show real tape, by the yeah. way. Yeah. The guy, a guy who's never done any presenting. Just I mean, it. and a few weeks later, he's believed presenter number twenty eight. And I'm yeah. like, it took me three and a half years. It took you three minutes. <laughs> but for some people, that kind of thing does happen. Yes. And for Matt, I, I had no doubt in my mind the first time I saw him present. So in some ways, that was hard to deal with because yeah, I was still the new boy. Yeah, of course. And suddenly Matt's come in this kind of whirlwind and it's such a natural and so yeah. good at so many things. But I knew right early on when people said, oh, you're made for life, you'll be fine. be, you know, I just didn't believe that because it had been a real effort to get to this point, that it would be wrong of me just to assume that when that time came to leave that those offers would be on the table. Yeah. And actually, when I left Blue Peter, there wasn't a single offer on the table. Did but you I, leave of
0: your own volition?
1: Yeah, I just I got to that stage where you, you, if you do it too long, with any job, but particularly, a, that it demands a lot of your time. Of the course. only downside is it demands a lot of your time. It, you know, I vividly remember having to do a... I can't remember what the drama was, but we were filming a drama called The Quest. Yes, I can't remember what the character was, but I was in costume on the same day that England are playing a European championships game, and I was f- in a foul mood all day that sure. I wasn't able to watch England, instead yeah. of dressing up and prancing around in outfits. So
0: there's a tension between the younger you and the older yeah. you, the, the, the children's TV yeah. presenter and possibly the sports... And they always said, the if you
1: stay too long... You'll yes. fall out of love with it, yes. and before long the viewers will spot that, and yeah. before long you'll become bitter. You've you've almost got to go while it's still really of good, course. and you did, and I did, and that's that's really really hard. And I remember sitting in the pub in just near my home in Battersea on the day after this big leaving show, and it was all very emotional and everything. And I sat there with my mate Toby, and I said, "I haven't got a job anymore. Mm-hmm. It's had six of the most amazing years, but right now, as I sit with you, mate, I've got a job." Yeah it was frightening so of I'm back there and actually I was right there are no offers on the table I've been to see BBC Sport I yeah. sat down with Philip Burney then head of BBC Sport yeah. And for whatever reason, I felt it was very narrow-minded of him, but it was his decision. He said, I don't see a kid's presenter working for." sport, even though I'd done a lot of stuff for them. And I'd shown a lot of interest. And actually had said, I, you know, I don't expect to come in at match of the day or football focus level. Sure. I'll start wherever. Listen, I don't want to be a runner, if I'm no. being honest. Oh, no, 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 of course. Cool. But I've got the broadcast skills. Yes. You know, I've done lots of live TV. I've done recorded TV. I've done interviews and stuff. I need to learn a new trade, but I've got the essential tools in place to do it. So can I go out and do match reports yeah. for Five Live or whatever? Yeah. I was literally ready to start anywhere sure, within reason. and well, Boom, shut the door. They shut the door. And Tough. that's why I'm sat there. In the pub. That happened really before made. Blue Peter finished. I knew the BBC sport, there was no that way. door had gone. You gone. had
0: met Gemma by this point.
1: Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you spoke to her presumably about quitting, were you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she joined me about two years in, she came into my life. And yeah, she, she was, she's always, her wisdom, I miss amongst lots of, of things, but I miss her wisdom. You know, she just said, look, I, I just think you're going you're gonna to need to leave while you're still enjoying it. Because, there, it's, listen, you know, you, we're really fortunate to do the jobs we do. We are so blessed. For sure. And there were moments, though, when you'd have to kind of catch yourself on, of driving out the car park onto Wood Lane at a TV centre. Mm. And just, you just, listen, the best jobs in the world still have their bad days. Yes, of course. And sometimes you drive out and you'd be cursing something that happened yeah. or this or that. And you'd have to go, but you're doing the best job in the world. What are you on about? One day you're going to look back on this and think, did that really happen? I still have those moments. Yeah. I can outstory anyone at a dinner party. If you want to play top trump experiences, I can, but I don't do it because I feel embarrassed. But I can top trump pretty much. You shouldn't most people. feel embarrassed. So no, it. no.
0: Other people love it. It's just, yeah, yeah. Because you've got this. If you're sitting next to an accountant and he's regaling you with his greatest hits, everybody's bored. Yeah. But TV presenters, and especially blue Peter presenters, they're rare creatures and they they are exotic. You should give yourself a break a bit. Tell a few more stories. Tell some more account. stories. Tell, okay. Tell some more. I'm gonna do that. So I'll ask you a slightly difficult question yeah. if I may, which yeah, is if, if if you are religiously you've decided that because you you, you, obviously Gemma came from a religious background as well yeah how how do you know that the relationship is progressing if you've made a decision not to go to bed together
1: and I I ask a a position of personal ignorance that's a really good question um but of course what I didn't say earlier just to put this into context listen there were plenty of times when we wanted to. Sure. And I wanted to. Yeah. But it wasn't until six months before, because people might be listening, well, incredibly strong. Yeah. How did you manage that? Well, actually, six months before we got married, I remember the journey. We were coming back from a weekend in, in Norfolk to see my family, and she'd gone very, very quiet. I remember turning around and you are you right? She said, I need to tell you something. I was like, oh, crikey, what's this? Is the engagement off? Yeah. And it turned out, and she told me through tears, that she'd had a physical problem that she'd only discovered in adolescence, as only you would in adolescence, that she had a physical problem that meant that sexual intercourse would be physically impossible until she had an operation. And she never needed to because she hadn't wanted to deal with the problem. But she knew, obviously, we're six months away from getting married. Can't really tell him on our wedding night that it's not going to happen. So bless her, she had to tell me that day. She said, I'm going to have to have an operation. I'm going to have to have a lot of counselling. We're going to have to have counselling. And it was it was like a bomb going off. I remember it vividly. And so from her point of view, it was, you know, even those moments where we were quite intimate. It was never going to It gonna was handbrake. never going to go. And sometimes I would—I—I I almost admired her ability not yeah. to go any further, whereas yeah. for a bloke, once you hit the old accelerator, uh, it's yeah, damn yeah, hard yeah. to take it, your it, foot it, off it, and pull it, the it, handbrake it. up. But I realised as, as we went on that that was why she was able to pull the handbrake up better than I did. But listen, th- I, we just had... Yeah, I'll be totally honest, that side of the relationship was always hard because I think she was very damaged by yes. that whole thing and feeling yes. less of a woman because of it. And then the whole fertility issues we had, she went through so much all a of shit in mm-hmm. terms of her physical being, yeah. which makes what eventually happened so, so hard to deal with on a whole number of levels. But it was just something there that even though that was going to be a disappointing area, even though for the first eight months of our marriage, we were still not going to be able to have intercourse together there was something so special about it it didn't matter listen we know that that physical side of relationship it it, it helps lay some of the foundations yes. it's, it's important Yes, it is it's not just about I want to get me end away it's no. not it's because it's it's an expression of love it's the big ex- the Intimacy. physical expression yes. of how much you love your wife and how much I love my wife you of course you express it in other ways as well but that is the most intimate thing you'll do but the, the way she supported me through Blue Peter, the way she was so wise and loving and patient and kind with me, all the things she showed to her friends down the years, and what they missed so much about her now, meant that there was something there that was so worth hanging on to. So that even when she dropped that bombshell six months before we get married, you thought, you know what? Okay, worth it. It's, it's going to be hard, and sure. it was hard coming to counselling off Oxford Street with yes. a, a sexual therapist yes, every week, sure. of course, for a few months. You don't to be doing that your first I few crammed, months of marriage.
0: Crammed a lot in. Did. Her. And yet, I don't. And I hadn't realised this until until we arranged to do this. You you were suffering from anxiety. You were off work yeah. when when Gemma yeah. was taken ill. So yeah. so although you'd found an emotional literacy, yeah. you weren't happy.
1: No, no, and that that's the. The hardest thing about that second bar is I'd had depression before, but it came after the second failed IVF. Well, the IVF, it didn't fail, it worked, but then Gemma had a miscarriage four weeks after, and any hopes we had of Ethan having a brother or sister were gone. And it was very, very hard to deal with, particularly as a bloke, because blokes, we want to mend things. We want to sort things out. Right, let me sort this out. Yeah, you can chuck more money at it and go again, but you have no power over whether it's successful or not. And for a bloke, that's a hard thing to deal with because it's a black and white thing, IVF. It either works or it doesn't. Seems an obvious thing to say, but there's no grey area. There's nothing in between. I know of what you speak. Yeah, you've been down that road. I have. Yeah, yeah it's hard. It really is, yeah. and it was my fault. So yeah. I mean, you carry that as well, yeah. which gives it an extra. Dimension. Exactly. But and Gemma carried that herself, and the depression came out of that. So there was a tangible. I but that, could see that's why. what we call logical depression. Yeah, Do you this see one what wasn't. I mean? Yeah, right. this wasn't. Okay, I've got you now. And I vividly remember waking up in September. And I'd started to feel the sense of the clouds coming back in, the dark clouds, as I call them. people yes. talk about the dog and stuff, but it's the dark clouds for me. And I woke up one morning and there was a new programme that we had on Sky Sports Football this, this year called The Debate. It's Monday to Friday, yeah. 10 o'clock. And it's my turn on that Thursday to do it. And to be honest, nothing against the show, but it's the kind of show you can do your eyes shut. It's not yeah. that difficult, five topics, here you go. Shh. <laughs> no, 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 no. But yeah, for us, it, it shouldn't. It's not it, the bigger chance. Don't give it away. Chant, oh, no, give it sorry, it sorry, There'll sorry, be another sorry. Matt
0: Baker somewhere sorry. listening to no, this. Don't. We have
1: all our jobs. No, One's enough. One's enough. There's only one Matt Baker. <laughs> boom, boom. But I remember waking up that morning and just this most uncomfortable bedfellow had suddenly come into my life, yes. which was I felt this sick feeling. That feeling maybe you have, you know, ahead of your your, your first A-level, whatever it is, just yes. a real sick feeling, but no logical reason for feeling like it. And I remember going to Reading at uh, that lunchtime to meet Gemma for lunch before getting on the train to go to Isleworth to Sky to do the programme. And I remember just sort of pushing the pasta around my bowl and Gemma said, what's wrong with you? Mm. I said, I don't know. I just woke up this morning. I feel anxious about tonight. And that then built over the next few weeks till it culminates in a in a full blown panic attack. I'd had the panic attacks before. At Old Trafford, 20 minutes before going on air for United game, I was in the disabled loo because you have to walk out the studio in, into a busy bar, and yes. I found the disabled loo because I could feel something was coming on in the studio. I've got right. Graham Sunes sat there, yeah. um, and I thought not because it's him. I just need to get out for a bit. Yeah. And I remember lying on the floor, not lying, sitting on the floor, of the disabled toilet, 20 minutes before going on air in floods of tears ringing Gemma saying, I don't know what to do. And she kind of talked me through it. She said a, an amazing prayer, just to, that God would give me the strength. She said, right, now you need to leave that, Lou, get up, leave it, ring Jack, your producer, and let him know what's going on. He didn't know about it this time. My sure. other producer, Billy, did. And I know you can do it. Yeah. And those words of reassurance got me Then actually, my boss, Gary Hughes, who looks after the football department, when I explained all this in the weeks after Gemma went about what it was like to go through that, he said, you know what, I watched it back after you told me all this and if anything your performance level went up a gear and i said that's because the brain is an incredible thing that even when it's dealing with something as as uncomfortable and horrible as anxiety and depression yet at that moment at half past eleven when the title music kicked in somehow this switch went on it's, it's because and the concentration
0: you. levels are so high yeah. you get a holiday from your brain you do yeah the clouds clear don't they? for those three and then hours they come back down again and then you leave
1: come off air and they're back in
0: and and this leads inexorably to, to the heartbreak yeah. at the centre of your life still, which is you, you. kind of walked away from Sky for a while, mm. and while you were off sick, Gemma started complaining about headaches. having headaches. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's the speed of what happens next, Simon. That's so staggering. Like well, six months today to talk to you, so that she went, and I still can't get my head around. Well, a that she's gone. I'm not. I think I passed on from the denial stage of grief. I know I know she's gone. We bare her ashes on on Saturday. But yeah, I can't get my head around the speed of, at which it happened. GP said it was stress. No reason to doubt that. No, not at all. And, yeah, listen, I was, I was really angry in the early days because, if she'd been three times, and three times he didn't pick up on it. Yeah. But the first time we went, it was a joint appointment. I went because I needed more pills for my depression. And we said, by the way, Gemma's got these headaches. What's that about? Were you worried? And and he said, I think a lot of it we down to the fact that yeah. Gemma's worried about you. And I yeah. thought, well, why wouldn't she be? That's yeah. fair enough. Yeah she's back in though on the friday and she's quite ill by this point and i'm back in with her mm. and the doctor just said having looked at all her vital signs and stuff I- i'm satisfied there's nothing seriously wrong with her but then she spends saturday sunday in bed some friends of ours angelica and michael i mentioned earlier were coming for lunch she's just one master chef Gemma was very excited about not because you know she won but you know just no, she wanted good. to talk to her about yeah, it yeah. and they had a book idea and everything she had to cancel. That's very unlike her. Right. She normally battled on, as women so often do. But she yes. she was good at doing it as well. And I was thinking, this is this is something. This is this is weird to see her like this. And by Monday afternoon, she'd been back to the doctors again. She had told me to go and see my counsellor. So even in what turned out to be the darkest hour that's was coming for. On that Monday morning, she gets an appointment at nine o'clock. She knows that at 9.15, I'm going to see the counsellor. She said, you go and see your counsellor, because of, she wanted to see me back at work, back better, back being myself, whatever that was going to be. And so she goes to the doctor on her own, and for some reason, I've had the conversation with, with her doctor, who was my doctor at the time, she didn't tell him that she'd been in bed all weekend and that she was absolutely exhausted walking to the ensuite bathroom, which you can reach through with one hand. Why didn't she tell him that I don't I don't understand it. I really I don't know, but I have to find peace in the fact I'm never going to know the answer to that because she's not here to ask. and then by the early hours of Tuesday morning, a doctor is ushering the words, her blood's deranged, she's got a blood cancer." and then in in days, your whole world's formed apart. and you haven't got time you know just didn't have time. Yeah, I just you know I met with a girl the other week called Hannah. And she lost her husband, Neil, uh, three months ago. So she's a little bit, she's not as far down the road as I am. And she got in touch on social media, which a lot of people do in this area, which has been cathartic and also has actually been just incredible, horrible, hard, hearing the the level of pain that a lot of people out there are in. But she got in touch and I knew she lived in Reading and Mm. we met up for coffee about a month ago. And she told me her story, and Neil had been ill for two years. They've got two boys, one's around Ethan's age, one's a bit older. And from about a year out, they knew it was terminal. And they'd watched Neil undergo a personality change because of the impact of the the tumour on the brain. And their boys had seen their dad wither away, physically because of the treatment and everything they'd seen their dad change and then of course I tell my story whereas Ethan's last memory of mummy is yeah she had some stuff coming out of her arm they were the the various drips and stuff and she was wired to a machine and she was in a hospital room but she definitely 100% still looked like mum Neil didn't look like their dad anymore and I said to her, which of the two scenarios yeah. would you have taken if you could have them? And interestingly, she said, I'd still want those two years. And I said, you know what, I'd, I'd want the three days. And people might think you're nuts, but you know what? Ethan is never going to have that memory of mum looking a shriveled up wreck. She's angel. It's, an it's mum, yeah. still mum. How did you tell him? So that morning, she'd fallen unconscious about half four, five She'd been perfectly fine the night before. But yeah. as I found out from having going to see her doctor in the weeks after to unpack what had happened that of Friday, course. because it can't wheel so quick. He, he basically said this, is that this is the best way I can describe what happened. You know, myeloid leukemia, acute myeloid leukemia. It's called acute because it develops so rapidly. Right. And in essence, her blood had become like a McDonald's milkshake. You know, when you first get it, it's quite hard to draw through the straw because it's still frozen. But mm-hmm. as it unfreezes, yeah. you can draw it through the straw much more easy. As her blood became thicker with these white blood cells. You know, you, in a healthy adult, I think your white blood cell count, the amount they take out should be around about 10, 11. Hers was not far off 500. Good, good. And so as the blood was pushed around her body in this thick state, over those days, those she'd only had it for three or four weeks max. That's how quick it develops. Good, good. It was doing damage to those blood vessels in her brain, those very thin membranes that surround the blood vessels as this thick blood was pushed through. That's why she had no energy to do anything in those final days. It was perforating those blood vessels. And so as the week went on and the chemotherapy kicked in, she'd be on the machine to take as many out as possible. Then she was on chemotherapy twice a day from the off. So Tuesday night, that first amount, and then it was twice a day. By the Thursday night, our friends come to see him, went away saying she seems on really good form, and she was. The white blood cell count was coming down, but of course what happened is, over the course of that night, is the blood became a consistency that it should be. It then began to flow out of those perforated oh, mate. Yeah. areas in the brain, which is why Dr. Annie Pennicott sits me down when he's finally looked at the brain scan and says she's got 15 to 20 separate bleeds. I've spoken to the head neurosurgeon here at Oxford. There's nothing we can do. And, yeah, it's um, – I forgot what you even asked me, James, because I often, uh, I often forget where I,
0: I – I think in the circumstances yeah, that's forgivable. Yeah. And I'll return to what I asked you, but I'll ask you something else now. Did mm. you get the chance to talk to her before you – was she conscious? No. So, no,
1: so, so you never dis- said goodbye? No. So that discussion I had with Hannah
0: – you did know, you ever, sorry to interrupt, right. did, did you ever discuss, because she knew how ill she was, 50-50 prognosis, mm.
1: did, did you discuss the possibility of her not no, being? No, no. Well, we, we got Russ to Oxford in an ambulance from Reading. That's when I knew this, yeah, is, this is really, serious. really serious. But it's only because they had this special equipment. It's like a dialysis machine, yeah, slightly yeah. different, but it took okay. our blood supply out twice over the course of four hours and took out as many. It filled these bags with with white blood cells. It was like a blood colour, but slightly sort of orangey. Yeah. It's like, goodness me. And I said to her, and Wendy, her mum, had joined us by this point, and Rebecca, her sister, were, were in that room that afternoon. And I said, look, I don't know what Dr. Andy's going to say when he comes in with the diagnosis later, but I said, let's just go day by day with this. Let's not jump to conclusions. You know, I said to Wendy, I said, particularly with your friends, nothing against my mother-in-law's friends, by the way, but, you know, you know I know what people are like. I said, if, if your friends are going to Google
0: yeah.
1: whatever this I she's got, wanna I don't want to know. No. You don't need to know. No. Gemma does not need to know. Let's just take it a day at a time. And so when it came to that afternoon and that late in that afternoon, he says, it's acute myeloid leukemia. Explain what it was. I went as far as what are the survival chances. That's what we'd agreed together. We'd go as far of. Now, if I'd known what I know now about it, that the complexion of those three days would have been entirely different. Because, yeah, of course, we were fearful. Of course, we were anxious. But it would have been a whole different league in terms of anxiety and fear. And you listen, I don't know in her mind, what she was... She must have thought about the possibility she wasn't going to see Ethan grow up. But she never got to be told what I had to be told, is your wife's got maximum six hours to live. And I don't know how. That's why I said to Hannah, this woman, I said, I'm glad Gemma didn't know what was coming. Because Because of the terror. And also just the amazing Bond. She hated being apart from Ethan. Hated it. I think in the, the eight years she had... I think probably maximum been 48 hours away from him, and today it's six months. And I go, how the hell has he not seen his mum for six months? You um, And it's only going to get longer. You wrote shortly afterwards,
0: Yeah. today I am crushed with indescribable pain, yeah. just three days after falling ill, with acute myeloid leukaemia. My dear wife Gemma passed away yesterday evening, surrounded by her family and friends. If you are a prayer, yeah. pray for my boy Ethan, eight years, precious and in bits. Thank yeah. you.
1: How could you still believe in God? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a bloody good, it's a bloody good question. Because if I don't, whatever kind of faith people have or don't have, and uh, some will listen to this or watch it and go, Well, I don't understand that. Mm. it's probably just a crutch that helps you through. But you know what? Watchers we are good. all have them. You know, when you know when footballers die, yeah. like Jimmy Armfield the other week or, or Ray Wilkins more recently, you know, you will often hear they'll be looking down on us today. And it's often said by people who have absolutely no faith whatsoever, wouldn't profess to be a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew or whatever. But it's something that helps them just to hang on to something. Because you know what? They often say that you won't find many atheists on a sinking ship. (laughs) You know, there's that there's that old medieval verse, I think it was, betwixt the stirrup and the ground, mercy I asked and mercy I found. I think it was about people falling off horseback. Mm. It's quite a common injury in breaking yes. their necks and dying. But that but there was still that moment, chance to say, to put things to rights. Help me. For me, James, it's simply this, and I realise it's not that simple for people, not everybody, but if I extract God from this, I do not understand. I pray with the most faith I've ever prayed that day. I marched out of the room of doom, as I call it. I don't know where I, I Listen, they talk in the Bible about the peace of God that passes all understanding. i would never really got that. I just yeah. thought it was some sort of, well, I don't know, sort of desert island kind of peace. What's this understanding bit? Actually, what it is, it's having peace in the most unlikely of situations. And I was able to walk out of that room that morning, having just been dealt the biggest blow I'll ever have. Well, hopefully the biggest blow I'll ever have. And felt a sense of calm. Yeah. I didn't unravel. I didn't lose it. I was able to calmly ring Gemma's mum and say, you need to get here now. I had to calmly ring Rebecca and my family and say, you need to get here now. And I need to get on the phone to Debs to say, can you go and get Ethan from school? Gemma's going. And I found a strength that I don't recognise in myself as I look back on it. And some of the the friends and family gathered in that room today, they talk about me in a way I don't really see. But I did feel peace. And I was able to pray that morning with the most faith I've ever prayed. I just simply kept laying my hand on Gemma's head and just saying, God, please, in the same way that I've read about you healing people in the Bible. And actually, I've seen it in the churches I've been at. Just stop this bleeding. I don't want Ethan to grow up without a mum. But I got to about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Interestingly, when I spoke to a doctor in the weeks afterwards, 1 o'clock I just felt this sense that it was now about preparing to say goodbye. don't know why, but actually when I spoke to Dr. Andy at that time afterwards, because he spoke about the fact that there was a slim sliver of hope in the early right. parts of that Friday where the brain can repair itself okay. and there was a possibility that the bleeding could have stopped. And I said, if she, if she got to 1 o'clock and the bleeding stopped, what would mm. have been the scenario for Gemma? He said, well, sadly she would have been so brain damaged by that point, you would have recognised her. And yet at one o'clock, I knew that that was the time to start saying goodbye. And that was what I did for the next four and three quarter hours. I told the story in her ear of when we met. I remember speaking about her wedding day. I remember chatting about Ethan and all the various memories he's going to have. He wasn't with her at this point. He came in twice and played at this amazing place called Maggie's next to the hospital with all these other cousins. And I prayed with her. I played some of her favourite music over the iPad. And... That, for me, is the peace of God that passes on and saying, that should not be possible. I should have been losing my shit, basically. I and yet that. I wasn't. And I came out of the hospital that night, and I've never shouted as loudly as I shouted at God. I just said, why? Why the hell have you left my boy without a mum, and he's only eight? You couldn't even give him a brother or a sister, and now you've taken his mum away. But I've realised over days, God didn't, he didn't decide... He didn't wake up. I don't, even, I don't even know God sleeps. Don't think he does. But I don't he decided on that. For you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna okay. visit this on Gemma today that that sure. week. I don't. If the God's like I can't listen. I'd, I'd I'd walk away from my faith now. Yes. That if that is who God is, that's the God I follow. Then, quite frankly, you can do one. I don't understand why he didn't intervene. I, and, and people say, oh, you won't find out the side, side of eternity. I've actually come, my, in, in terms of my theology, lots has changed. And I just say, do you know what? I don't think I'll ever find out. No. You know why? Because if heaven is as good as I believe it's going to be, when you get there on whatever that day is, and hopefully it's a long way off, particularly for the sake of Ethan, sure, all those worries and fears will, will dissipate. But yeah, I, I came at the hospital that night and I ranted at God in, in a way I've never ranted before. But, you know, I've I've come to understand that if I take my faith out of the equation then at that moment the hope ends yes the hope that i'll see Gemma one day you know ethan ethan he's not been indoctrinated i'm not told him this is how you this is what you believe this is what he's grown up this is what Gemma poured into him along with me you know in terms of how she lived out her faith and actually put it into action in terms of the stuff she was doing with refugees Mm. and our church of providing a house for a syrian family to come to that's all going to happen sadly she's not going to be there to see that family arrive like a... and for me to see that pro- I wanted to take it to Heathrow and pick them up I, re- I couldn't wait to do it just to see Gemma's face to see all that work but the fortunately the women at church have taken it on and gone with it Good. you know if I take my faith out of the equation nothing makes sense to me okay. this doesn't make sense but life doesn't make sense anymore what's there to hope for yeah see Ethan grow up and that's a massive hope of course it is but he prays now. He, you know, he, he used to say grace on a Sunday. He quite liked it. And his grace had been pretty much the same one for a couple of years, which was something like, dear God, we thank you for this food, this roast lamb So We thank you for mummy's mm. roast lamb. And, um, you know, we pray that we know that we're always really blessed. Basically, we're, we're lucky to have food on the table. Mm. Really sweet grace. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he had his on in the last few weeks. And we pray that mummy is having a good time in heaven. That's where he believes she is. But the hard, the painful bit is as an earthly weight. Yes. And as he said to his teacher, Mrs Liptrop, the other week, I've got a really long, long wait till I see mummy. And he has. He's got the rest of his life. You know, I sat there over a few weeks ago just working out what the average life expectancy for a woman in this country is. And I think it's well into your 80s now. Is it? You know, crazy. and if everything had panned out for Gemma, I hoped it would. And she hoped it would. And pans out for Ethan. He's just lost over 40 years of having his mum around. You know, and that's just... I said, Dad, that's heartbreaking. It's the one part of the, the narrative. I held him the other day, and I was just like, it was, it was really horrible. We'd done this amazing party yeah. on Saturday. It was Gemma's birthday weekend. I decided to flip a negative into a positive. We'd planted this tree. The ashes were going in there. We did a big garden party for a 40th last year in our garden. I thought, let's do it again. We did do it again. And it was amazing. It was emotional. It was hard. It was exhausting. But the Friday before that night, we were just sort of decorating the marquee. And Ethan was very withdrawn. Uh, and then the tears started to flow. And I just held him. I said, well, that's a completely obvious thing to say. But, you know, what's going going on in your head at the moment? He's I'm missing mum. I want mum back. And you just, it's the heart, it's heartbreaking because as a dad, you want to fix it. You want to fix it for your kids. If your kids have got things they're struggling with, you want to do everything. But at the heart of this, I cannot fix it. I cannot change that one heartbreaking narrative, which is mum is not going to be coming back. And
0: when you write
1: in your blog a grief shared
0: about Mm. as you speak so honestly to me now how much and this possibly is an unfair question but I'm going to ask it anyway how much of it is therapy for you and how much of it is a Christian altruism born of a desire to help others like Hannah who you mentioned earlier
1: I think there's a it's it's a combination of the two The, the reason I started blogging was because uh, my friends were a bit worried about this. You know, I look back on those first few weeks and it is so, so intense. Yes. I mean, I, I see grief is like a storm and the clouds and the storm and the winds and the waves still come back. You know, one of the pictures I've got at home is that this lighthouse just off the coast of France and it stands in the sea on the rocks and there's waves raging around it. And actually why I love it is because in the doorways is the lighthouse keeper looking out the lighthouse stands still of course but at times it it disappears from sight because the waves are so high and griefs like that in those first few weeks it is so intense that you're making you know rash decisions you're making the wrong choices you're ripping people's heads off because they've said the wrong thing yeah it's an absolute maelstrom of emotions it's it's something i'd never wish on anyone to go through that well of course you wouldn't but that experience in itself is, is just hard and I just felt I was quite, I mean, quite scattergun with what I was saying online on, on Twitter or, or whatever it was. And so there's I, a lot of unpleasant people out yeah, there looking for opportunities. Of to, the to, land of the unhinged, as I call it. Absolutely. And you know it all, all too well. Yeah. I just decided one day, I thought, do you know what? I think, I think I need to do something a little bit more considered. So rather than just firing off these thoughts, write, write a bit more. And do you yeah. know what? I've never... I loved writing at school and stuff. I have never really had to do any writing since. I wrote for a football magazine that, sadly, I like to think it wasn't down to me. It, lasted. Sure it, two only, events only. it only lasted six months. <laughs> <laughs> but I used to write about the championships and stuff. And that was fine, but, you know, that was work. Whereas I suddenly found with this, I don't know where I found it from, I found a real therapy yes. in writing and expressing myself. And I found a way to express myself that seems to resonate with people in a way that I never expected I don't listen I don't know what the various figures mean on WordPress where I have my blog but I like, uh, last time I looked this is not a boasting this is just no, no, like, no, I'm no, genuinely no, no, surprised no. Yes. that over a million people have been through it over the last few weeks. The question of my mind is, why is this resonating? And I remember like, I put out uh, a blog on strength through weakness because I sat there one morning and, and my sleep was at its worst. I'd woken up at half three again. And that's and rather it, than, when you wake up. Yeah, and I'd rather than fight it. Yeah. I, and it's, it's actually other people who got more worried, my mother-in-law and sister and all those people were more worried about my sleep than I did. I just thought it's part of grief. Yeah. Don't fight it. So I used to go down quite often I just go down and write just random thoughts. I've got about 15,000 words written, which are really important to me because it reminds me of what those early few were days and actually what was going through my mind not i kind of remember i was thinking this i can actually read how i was feeling on that first sunday that first monday mm. and i just opened up the old laptop that morning sat in the kitchen and and someone had put up on facebook this quote from a christian leader called pete greg i've got to know a bit now and his wife had been through having a brain and he, he wrote a book which he said don't read at the moment because my ending's different to yours but he's called it god on mute which is all about where is god yes. admits what he was going through yes. but he said the difference is We had a happy ending. Right. You didn't. So until you're emotionally in that place, he said I just wouldn't read it for now. But one of the quotes this person had put up on Facebook of his was about this unclenching of your fist. Okay. and actually be daring to be vulnerable, daring to be weak. This plays into the whole mental health thing, you know, and particularly it's not discounting women, but for blokes. Mm. We, we're so, so bad. I mean, today I've been having a massive, not a row, I've yeah. been having a debate with some lunatic about mental health. Mm. That's probably the wrong <laughs> two words to use. But, you know, on, <laughs> online. But the irony is this guy having a crack at me about grief and mental health, he's actually sparked a really healthy debate over the very thing he despises. So it's been brilliant but it's a mission for you now then yeah I mean, some in some your- ways it is yeah and I, I woke up that morning I see that quote and all that came into my mind is the time and time again the recurring comment whether it be on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or actually people in person yes or in cards where it had been stay strong be strong for Ethan and I'd often think what does that look like in a situation such as this in a scenario such as this what is being strong and I just sat there and thought that quote really hit me right between the eyes yeah. and I just started writing Thought, I'm gonna write something and I just, I literally wrote it in 25 minutes. I sat there about 10 minutes thinking, I don't know how to start this. And then suddenly the thought came in my head. I, I sat down on the sofa again, made myself another cup of tea. It's about half four at this stage. And my punctuation, James, has never been the best. I was looking out for some rogue commas and stuff. <laughs> I didn't change a single word. Gosh. Which is very unusual. Normally you change something. I read it. I yeah. thought, no, oh, that's all I want to say. I published it. By quarter to six, whenever it was that night, my sister-in-law, Rebecca, who was living with us at this point, yeah. walks in and says, you, your blog has just been quoted on Radio 1 Newsbeat. And I'm like, what? And it just exploded that day. For whatever reason, that particular blog resonated. You yep. know, And with nothing, with any of this, that, that tweet all those weeks ago, yeah. six months ago, tomorrow,
0: Yeah.
1: that that tweet you read out, it wasn't intended for any of this to happen. Get that. The only thing I thought about is I'm just going to let people know what it feels like. Yeah. Simon, thank you. Uh, we it's haven't met pleasure. before. But I,
0: I'm, I'm going to say something to you that might, I don't know, it might not quite ring right you must have spent the last six months looking at ethan and thinking that in many ways he's one of the unluckiest little boys in the world yeah he's very very lucky to have you i hope you remind yourself of that sometimes
1: Uh, that's very kind mate very kind You're you're a top man god bless thank you mate thank you
0: i think that is the first unfiltered that has moved me to a point where i couldn't stop the tears leaking out of my eyes i've been close a couple of times but there's a rawness To Simon's grief and an inspirational quality to his honesty that just hit me somewhere that doesn't get hit very often. I do hope that you felt the same. You can, of course, subscribe to Unfiltered, whatever platform you downloaded this episode. Do leave a rating and a review on iTunes if you're so minded. And a couple of the themes there actually have popped up in other episodes of Unfiltered, other personal experiences that our guests have shared. So if you did find yourself being touched by that, then do spread the word. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien. Brought to you by Joe.